Ink and Paint wishes to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people, the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded and edited. It is a great privilege to be able to tell stories on this land, which has a tradition of storytelling stretching back over 10,000 years. We also wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands from all over the world where our guests record from. We pay our respects to all elders past, present and emerging, and to our First Nations listeners. Now we come to my notes here, my typewritten notes. It is integral to the book and to the story in whatever form is presented that Mary Poppins should never be impolite to anybody. We get the comedy out of this grey, quiet, polite person through which all the strange magic happens. He asks her a few things, you see, because you say later on he thought at the beginning there was something wrong with her. And it would be very good if he said, and what was your last position? Seems to have seen her, but we didn't say so. She answers a family of repute, sir. And where before that would a family of even greater repute, sir? <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ink and Paint, a podcast journey through the Disney animated classics. I'm your host, Daniel Lemon. We're exploring one by one the films in the official Disney animated canon and talking about their artistic, historical, and social context, where they come from, their impact, and how they sit with us now. In our last episode, we looked at the magical Arthurian fantasy, The Sword in the Stone. In this episode, we take a rare trip away from the Disney animated classics to look at the legendary live-action masterpiece, Mary Poppins. Each episode on Ink and Paint, I'm joined by a special guest, not just film and animation enthusiasts, but people from all different professions. This week, I'm joined by award-winning performer Verity Hunt Ballard. Verity is best known for her award-winning performance as Mary Poppins in Cameron McIntosh's smash hit musical of the same name, for which she received a Helpman Award and a Green Room Award. In 2014, Verity won her second Helpman Award for Best Female Actor in a Musical for her standout performance as Charity Hope Valentine in Sweet Charity for Luckiest Productions. Verity's other stage credits include Sydney Symphony Orchestra's Funny Girl at the Opera House, Vivid White for Melbourne Theatre Company, Hello Dolly and Guys and Dolls for the production company, and The Last Five Years for Vic Theatre Company. As well as performing, Verity is a passionate teacher of the performing arts, having spent the last decade teaching voice, acting, movement and performance throughout the country. In recent years, Verity has used her extensive knowledge of storytelling and industry connections to enter the producing realm. In June 2020, with co-creator Amelia Christo, she released children's podcast Story Kids, and after an overwhelmingly positive response to the first two seasons, Story Kids has now partnered with the Australian Literacy and Numeracy Foundation to produce Season 3. Verity, welcome to Ink and Paint. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. What drew you to musical theatre as the performance form that you wanted to work in? What was it about musical theatre that attracted you to begin with? Well, I grew up in Adelaide and there weren't too many sort of opportunities to go to live musical theatre. My parents were very um, supportive of the arts and I learnt the piano and I I danced from an early age, but I didn't really know that musical theatre was something you could do professionally until a bit later on. Um, I had a neighbour across the road 
a lovely older lady called Betty Candy, and she had this incredible VHS library of Bill Collins' midday musicals. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I, I didn't know at the time that that was kind of paving the way in terms of my love of watching Gene Kelly and Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire and Shirley Temple. And and I would kind of say to mum and dad, oh, can I, I'll just go over and see how Betty is and her cat. <laughs> and actually, I just wanted to plant myself in front of her, her TV and, and watch these incredible, um, they were kind of fantasies for me, I guess. It was just, I, I would just get lost in the escapism of it all. Do you remember what which ones had the biggest impact on you? Was there one, is there one that really sticks out? I think Calamity Jane was definitely played several, several times. Uh, there, a few of the Shirley Temples and Fred, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers um, singing in the rain and yeah, I, yeah, Mary Poppins was definitely, and The Sound of Music was definitely up there. Um, but then she had some really interesting unknown ones that probably I'm certainly not an encyclopedia when it comes to that stuff. I was, I was the kid at Whopper when I rocked up at drama school and put my hand up in the first lesson of history of arts and said, who's Stephen Sondheim? Oh. Like, yeah, it was embarrassing. It was, yeah. It's, uh, academia is not my, my forte. <laughs> We've, we've all done it. When I turned up to NIDA and someone said, you know, talked about Arto, I was like, who's Arto? Yeah. And the rest of the class just turned with this withering look of, who the fuck are you? What are you doing here? But I really gravitate towards those people sometimes because, I, you know, often with teaching, it's like it's that rawness that actually is really refreshing because they haven't been bound by knowing too much or being too learned in a particular area. But yeah, I think Calamity Jane was definitely the top, the top choice. And how did you find yourself becoming a musical theatre performer? Was there a particular, was, did something happen at school? Was there a performance club or a performance society that you were drawn to? Yeah, what brought, brought you to being a performer? I played the piano from a young age and I danced. I, I loved to dance and I, I had a, um, a few beautiful singing teachers um, in high school. And then it was a drama teacher, Neil Scales in Adelaide, that really drew my attention to university degrees that were drama schools. And I, I really didn't know about the VCA or NIDA or Whopper or Griffith. Or, and he said, you can go and study this. You can do a, a bachelor of this. And, and so I started to really think about I, I, the thing with musicals was that it just merged my love of song, movement, choreography, dance, music. I didn't, it wasn't, I don't think I knew at the time that it was, it was just, I wanted to do it all. And I'd started a dance degree in Adelaide after high school. And I just realised um, a few times some of the amazing contemporary choreographers would say, Verity, you're just using your face too much. You're drawing, you're drawing attention to just you and not the ensemble of dancers. <laughs> And I thought, I don't think I'm supposed to be a contemporary dancer. Like, I, I don't think I'm just supposed to use my body to tell stories. I think, I, I think I'm in the wrong genre here. Yeah, so I auditioned for Whopper and I didn't get in and then I was devastated and then I auditioned again the next year and, and went to Perth. And what was that like? What was the experience of going and studying? Because, I mean, it is, it is one of those things when you're a student in high school, nobody tells you that this is something you can study in the, to the same you know, a degree as you can study medicine or law, you know, in a kind of conservatory uh, situation. What was it like stepping into WAPA and being able to study this thing that you loved so much? For me, the journey was incredible, instrumental and divine for me. And that's not to say that it wasn't very challenging. I was a 
kid from Adelaide that had never lived out of home and had never been to Perth before and didn't come with that uh, Sydney, Melbourne sort of click of knowing amateur musicals or anything like that. I just, I rocked up pretty raw, but I, I loved it. And I, I mean, just to get in, like so many people audition and, and I, and I had had the experience of not getting in. So my appreciation for just being able to go there, um, was huge. And I, I had amazing lecturers and, and visiting guests and artists. And I, I just, I ate it up. I, I just loved it. And, so much so that when we arrived in after graduating in Sydney, I think it was a bit of a shock uh, to one's ego thinking, oh, I've arrived, everybody, I've arrived, I'm ready, I'm here I am, and, and, and the world going, yes, and here's the other hundreds of people auditioning for shows as well that are equally as talented. And so the, the audition train started for me and I, I received a lot of rejection and a lot of... Um, heartache and it's it's a hard slog it's um it was it was hard and then I I I got into a musical a few years after graduating and then yeah it sort of took off after that but a lot of uh co-op theater and a lot of free stuff and a lot of just I was just up for anything I was like I just wanted to immerse myself in the craft and learn 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 and 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 create connections and um yeah and to ask a quite a big and quite complicated question. What do you think is the role of musical theatre within the wider context of theatre and performance? Because it's in some ways, you know, that what you were saying before, it's the one, it's one that can combine so many talents in a performance. Like, you know, it can combine, it's you know, singing a movement and storytelling and physical storytelling and visual storytelling. In some ways, it's kind of like, it's an ultimate kind of artist you know, art form or form of artistic expression but it's also has a very particular place you know commercially within the world of theater what do you think is the role of musical theater within wider theatrical performance i think that's a really interesting question and i, I guess it i guess it's kind of individual but also a really interesting time particularly after last year, in terms of the evolvement of musical theatre. I struggle a little bit sometimes with the relevance and I'm really interested in that question because it can be seen as a dated art form or an irrelevant art form or not not representing the times and, and what are the lessons that are being learned. But at the same time, when people go to see a musical of a bygone era, there is something so magical about escaping into that world for two and a half hours. Um, I think we have a responsibility to keep it alive and that's why I'm quite passionate about new works, about as long as they're they're done um, tastefully and and cleverly. I really like reimagined works. You know, it's it's our kind of ritual of going to the theatre and watching stories be told with with the whole human instrument and I guess the role that it plays I think is um I think people learn a lot I just I think sometimes we need to as practitioners and creators we just need to make sure that we're not relying just on the fluffiness and therefore you know musicals get that reputation of being well light and fluffy or people say oh, I don't like musicals they're not my thing but then they go and see something like Jersey Boys or something that perhaps they're a person that they weren't a musical theatre person, but they they go to see something essentially with music, dance and movement 
and script and they go, oh, I didn't know that that was classed as a musical. Or I think a lot of really interesting stuff is happening in Australia under the umbrella of musical theatre and we're, we're rapidly changing actually what that form is. And it's also a surprise, I think, for some people who think that musical theatre is going to see something big and flashy and show, which is, there is definitely a, a, a place for that. And, you know, when they work, they're sublime. But there's also a surprise when you go and see a musical and it has a tremendously, you know, a rich thematic heart to it. Like, and it was one of the shocks, I, I, was, I was in the, the US a few years ago and I'd never been to see anything on Broadway. And that was the big shock I had seeing musicals in America where the art form comes from and going, oh, these... These are taken as seriously as a as a piece of traditional theatre would be, and thought of as being as dra- dramaturgically complex and rich as they are. It's a surprise. I think it's that in some ways that's almost the way to get someone to fall in love with a musical is to be like, watch this. This is el- this is actually what else it can do. Because um, I think we we under we underestimate how powerful musicals can be. Yes, and how hard they are. Yes, <laughs> like, yes. I think people go to the theatre and um, I know in my career, you know, very innocently people have said, oh, it's such a glamorous life, just treading the boards, having fun up there. And, yes, it, is, it can be an immense amount of fun, but it's also really, really challenging in terms of your craft and if you want to be really good at it, you have to be a bloody hard worker and not just a physical hard worker or, but uh, but in terms of intellect, in terms of respect for the piece, in terms of musicianship, um, in terms of instrument, in terms of how to collaborate in a group night after night for a two-year run or how do you be a leader if you're in a principal role? How do you mentor the younger performers? How do you, you know, um, behave with the public? How do you uh, respond to improvising each night in a live theatre sense when something's going on in the audience or a, a, a baton has been dropped by a conductor or that, you know, a light has fallen on stage or you've dropped your shoe, all of those things that require immense amounts of discipline. And in my career, you know, I was lucky enough to, and am lucky enough to have been in the presence of people like Nancy Hayes or um, people that have had such extensive, long careers. And I think that's because of their gracious humble um, work ethic and that, you know, she's such a, a queen of talent but also respect for the art form and for other people. Dare I ask, do you have a favourite musical? <laughs> oh, I'm just not a favourite person. I don't have a, like a favourite anything. I'm really into um, lots of different things and musicals. I mean, I, I, lo- I guess I love the form of like Rodgers and Hammerstein and, and I have such... Uh, such awe of Stephen Sondheim and and that, but they feel so different for me. So to have a favourite, I mean, I, I know at university we performed The Wild Party, which has always stayed with me as um, such an interesting piece, which you can't get the rights for, so it, it can't really be staged. But um, yeah, and then there's attachment to actually having played roles in musicals and then seen musicals. I mean, when I went and saw Matilda, uh, I thought in terms of a contemporary, I remember saying to Tim Minchin, oh, my gosh, this is just incredible. Like I, I just thought it was the most beautiful show. And then classics, I mean, performing in Sweet Charity was I, I learned so much about what an amazing piece that is, the sort of learning about the ins and outs of a jukebox musical as opposed to a more classical 
kind of musical, a little night music is so beautifully crafted uh, and written for that show as opposed to like Jersey Boys, which is those perfectly formed songs then then cleverly scripted to put into a book for a musical. So, yeah, it's really hard for me to say. Um, <laughs> yeah, that it's, was a really long-winded a, no. I don't have a favourite. <laughs> it's, a, it's a terrible tendency of mine, which you will, will come up against again in this podcast of, of doing the thing of like asking people what their favourite thing is and almost every person's like, no, I don't have a favourite thing. Who thinks of that stuff? Talk about a more re- a more current project that you're working on. You have your podcast, Story Kids, um, which is fabulous. A really, really tremendous podcast. I was listening to it today and it's so much fun and so joyous. Tell us a bit about what the form of the podcast is and how you came up with the idea. Well, uh, a dear friend of mine and collaborator, the co-creator, Amelia Christo, and I are both from the musical theatre world. So we we feel like, um, whether it's on purpose or not, we have brought our skill set as educators and performers to this new medium, which really encompasses, you know, for me, storytelling, it's all the same. I mean, you study a discipline for years and years and then you excel in that discipline, but it's all storytelling. And we kind of sat in the schoolyard one day and went, wow, there's a lot of audio stuff that's created overseas for kids, particularly primary school age kids. Wow, they're really listening to American and English accents a lot, which is fine, but we have such a a lot of stuff to say as Australians. We have such a pool of amazing Australian storytellers and I, you know, have kind of nurtured some (laughs) friendships along the way and I tried to pull some favours and said, look, we've come up with this idea that a child writes, an Australian child writes a, a approximately a 500-word story and we interview that child about how storytelling, how writing, how creating makes them feel. And then the second half of the podcast is a very well-known Australian celebrity narrating that child's story and it's then designed into an incredible sound design by Russell Goldsmith and a collection of sound engineers to make it an audio, a kind of immersive audio experience. And we, we, took a while to refine that idea and that concept and did a lot of research and and a lot of playing to kids and going, is this interesting? Do you like this? And the response was just overwhelming in terms of kids of that generation going, I want to know about the ancient storytelling ritual, but make it relevant and make it digital and make it, we want it, we want to nurture kids uh, writing their own stuff and creating rather than adult entertainers always telling kids what they should think and feel. That was a question I was going to ask because um, the thing that struck me listening to the podcast was the fact that that in itself is such a kind of revelatory idea of it's not it's not an adult telling a child a story that an adult has written. It's a child hearing a story they have written told back to them. We talk a lot about how important storytelling is for children, but how important do you think it is for children to have their stories that they've come up with, their their you know artistic creations, heard and respected? How important do you think that is for them? I think it's immensely important, and that was the real key for Amelia and I coming up with the concept for the podcast of going, how about, and particularly because we've just partnered with the Australian Literacy and Numeracy Foundation who jumped on board, they primarily work in the Indigenous and marginalised community space. So they said, we are amplifying these kids' voices that perhaps wouldn't be amplified. Not only are we saying what you're feeling, what you're writing, what you want to express is valid, we're also going to help and bolster you in that because this really well-known person that 
is admired is going to tell your story. And so it's felt like the response and the kind of not only the um, activity of the child doing it or the classroom listening to that child, it's, it's the response of people putting it on in the car and going, oh, we've got so many stories to tell, so many. And that sometimes we we say, you know, oh, but, but a child's written it, like it, it wouldn't be. But we help that child and edit it and, and help it turn into an audio creation. And it's um it's one of the most rewarding things I've been involved in in terms of more than ever, particularly after last year and the, and the ongoing climate in the world, kids need help in expressing themselves with mental health and all of that stuff. And we we know as artists, that's why we went in, into performing, whether we knew it or not, it's a form of expression. And I think if we can support kids doing that from an early age, not to hide their stories or not write stories at all, uh, particularly with screens and stuff, but actually go tell your story, look where it can go. One of my favourite moments in the podcast is the conversation you have with the child. So they have, you know, the, and, you know you, the, comp, the questions you're asking, these writers, these new storytellers, are new, uh, heavy legitimate questions about their process and their craft and their decision-making. And you can hear the beauty of it is first hearing those kind of questions asked in a, in a very you know, direct, respectful way to a child, but then to be able to hear how articulate these children are about being, you know, how, you know, if these people are taking my work seriously, I can speak seriously about it with authority and pride. It's very, very moving. That's such a lovely observation. That makes me feel great. Amelia is incredible at drawing that out and making a child feel so comfortable to talk and and respecting the child. She really just talks to them like she would talk to anybody. And I think that's why when we asked all these amazing Australian celebrities to be part of it, I think they all kind of said yes, because they believe in the project and, and like yourself, were quite moved by listening to episodes and going, I want to be part of telling this child's story or making this child feel empowered by, you know, Casey Donovan read my story or Baker Boy read my story or, you know, Eddie Perfect read my story. And and that's that's so great to for kids not to go, oh, well, that happens to other people or I have to do that when I grow up. But actually, we have so much to learn from kids. Yes, immensely, immensely. Well, to segue from talking, you know, talking about children's story and children's storytelling, talking about Disney, do you remember what the very first Disney animated film was that you saw? Ah, that's a good question. Uh, I, I was quite into, like, Mickey Mouse as a kid, but in terms of films, I think Bambi, yeah, I mean, I was right into the kind of the classic Disney characters, Pluto, um, Mickey, Minnie, uh, yeah. So you would have been more drawn towards the short films then as opposed I to think, the longer yeah, films? Yeah, I think it wasn't until I was older that I got into more like Snow White and Cinderella and all, all the versions of the fairy tales because... I was quite a sensitive viewer and now looking back, looking at my own children, I realise, you know, when you've got a vivid imagination, the darkness of some of those fairy tales, like they they were dark. Particularly a film like Bambi. Bambi is a very honest and raw and emotional film. And, you know, it, for, it is kind of hard looking at it as an adult. You go, how does a child respond to this? But what drew you more so to the classic characters? What was what was the appeal of Mickey and Pluto and Goofy and, and Minnie and Donald? Probably the freedom of them. I guess because they're animals. It's so interesting when an animal takes on board a, a, a human characteristic. I, I, um, I mean, Disney, he was just a 
genius, wasn't he? I mean, yeah. You know that. I mean, but... <laughs> you're not going to hear any, any disagreements on that fact from me. Um, you should do a podcast about him. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, with the, the the more fairy tale characters, I guess as a child it was like, I, I want to be that. I want to be Cinderella. I want to be Sleeping Beauty. I want to be Rapunzel. But with the um, with the animal characters, I think it was more just, it was, it was just such joy. There's a great freedom to them. But like, you know, particularly characters like Donald and Pluto who can misbehave and they get reprimanded for, misbe- for misbehave, but misbehaving, but they also learn something and then they'll go off and find another way to misbehave. There's something very appealing to the kind of, uh, certainly in comparison to something like the, the Looney Tunes, there's a kind of safety to the anarchy of the Disney the, the, the stock Disney characters that, you know, you know they're going to get in trouble and it's going to be fun, but you know they're going to get out of it and they're going to be okay at the end. Yeah, that's so true. I, yeah, I didn't think of that, but probably the clown in me really responded to the clown in them because there's a there's a kind of cheeky um, wildness to them, but you know that it's not going to go too far. And what was your relationship with Disney as you grew older? Like, did it, did it was it a persistent relationship or did it disappear? Has, have you, you know, what's been your ongoing relationship with Disney? It was probably um, reignited at drama school when there were, was that surge of, you know, I, I was there in the early 2000s. So there was a surge of, on Broadway, there was... A lot, you know, there was a, a surge of, of Broadway Disney musicals coming back, these re- revivals or new musicals being created. So I guess it started then and then it restarted then. And then I guess then I formed actual relationships with the Disney Australian team and American team when Mary Poppins came along. And what about as a parent? What is your relationship with Disney as a parent? And what's oh. your kids' relationship with it? Well, they, I mean... They they're fascinated. My girls are, are fascinated with fairy tales. So they write from the kind of Grimm's brothers. They want to know. So someone wrote this, and then someone illustrated it, and then it was turned into a play, and then it was turned into a movie. Like they want to know the kind of how how come the same story can be told in so many different mediums. Oh, what a what a thing to be fascinated by at a young age. It's like, oh, you're in for a treat. Uh, yeah. Oh, can't they just be doctors? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, they're quite interested in the in the process of like, well, my eldest at least. And yeah, I, th- I they're still watching it. I guess just immense joy for Scott and I watching it through their eyes. So you you view something for the first time again and and, and I guess having a new appreciation for Walt Disney in terms of just the brilliance of and the visionary that he was. Because it's quite a surprise because, you know, it's one thing to look at them when you're a child, but then to go through the process of developing a craft yourself as an artist, as a storyteller, and then to return to them and look at them again from the other side of being a creative, there is quite a surprise of going of how accomplished they are. Particularly, the, particularly the films made in his lifetime, but then also I, th- I guess the films in the early nineties as well. Of just going, there's so much care and thought put into the way this story is constructed. Sure, you have to look at them through the lens of the time they were made, but even then, you know, you look at the, const- the story construction of a film like Pinocchio or a film like. Um, Alice in Wonderland, or the film we're going to talk about today, which we'll talk about with Mary Poppins, of just going, there is 
such sophistication in the structure and approach of these stories, of this, these pieces of storytelling. Yes, you're right. The structure and the formula and the ever-changing formula and just the the experience that that he must have um, assembled the kind of cream of the crop to make the and and also um it's a great lesson being a creative of going things take time <laughs> and and i guess perhaps in that era there was more time or uh, a less kind of rushed approach to pumping out material and i watch the pace of those films and i think Oh, I'd love my kids to watch more of that pace as a, as opposed to the quick changing of frames all the time in television and and film these days, and which is really not good for kids. And I think there's this this um, pace that kids escape into with Disney stuff that is um, so cleverly crafted. Walt Disney had always been interested in live-action filmmaking. When he arrived in Hollywood in the 1920s, he had planned to be a live-action film director before turning his attention fully to animation. Many of the now classic animated films that began development in the 1930s were, at some point, considered as live-action or hybrid films, and only Song of the South in 1946 would reach the screen in this form. By the 1960s, though, Live-action film production at Disney had become a self-contained department as significant at the studio as animation, and far more profitable. In the end, the turn to live-action was less artistic and more out of necessity. They were cheaper and far quicker to produce. Looking back on them now, almost none of these films have any lasting legacy, certainly compared to the animated classics. They served a purpose, and that purpose was almost never creative. In 1964, though, Walt Disney Productions would release a live-action film that would not only be the finest of its kind the studio would ever produce, but an artistic triumph as significant as the animated classics. It would, in many ways, be the culmination of everything Walt Disney had to say as a storyteller, his most remarkable creation in the later years of his life. A perfect storm of story, artistry and filmmaking. It would also owe much to the technical and narrative discoveries made by Disney Animation over the past 40 years. Just as she would do with the Banks family, the mysterious and magical nanny Mary Poppins would restore Walt Disney Productions' faith in itself. In London in 1910, at number 17 Cherry Tree Lane, Jane and Michael Banks are in need of a new nanny. Though they want one with a cheery disposition, their highly strung father, George Banks, wants someone who will discipline the children and bring order to his home. To their surprise, a mysterious and eccentric nanny named Mary Poppins arrives on their doorstep. Though George and his suffragette wife Winifred see her as the perfect disciplinarian, the children discover she has magical abilities. And along with jack-of-all-trades Bert, she takes them on incredible adventures across the roofs of London, high in the air, and even inside chalk drawings. When an attempt to connect George with his children by taking them with him to his workplace at the bank goes horribly wrong, George sees his life unravel before his eyes, potentially losing his job and threatening to tear the family apart. Through their love, though, George rediscovers the importance of compassion, love and charity, and the family finally clicks back into place. Her work done, Mary Poppins packs her bottomless carpet bag, grabs her umbrella, and takes flight into the skies of London. 
Mary Poppins, Walt Disney's Oscar-winning musical masterpiece, is based on a series of books written by Australian-born British writer Pamela Lyndon Travers. The character first appeared in a short story in 1926, Mary Poppin and the Matchman, and a full collection of stories, Mary Poppins, was published in 1934 to great acclaim. Over the next 54 years, Travers would write a further seven books featuring her iconic creation, all of them illustrated by Mary Shepard, daughter of Winnie the Pooh illustrator E.H. Shepard. Following the release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in 1937, a number of people approached Walt Disney with ideas for possible future projects. Amongst these was the American publisher of Mary Poppins, who sent the book to Walt with the note, It's not Mickey Mouse, but I think you'll like Mary Poppins. The timeline of what happened next is a little unclear, but according to Walt, he first paid attention to the book when he heard his daughters, Diane and Sharon, giggling in their room, and checking on them, found them reading Mary Poppins. Not long after, Lillian also read the book and was similarly charmed by it. It's not clear when these readings would have happened, or even if they happened years later, but in December 1938, Walt asked Roy to approach Travis for the rights to the book directly, rather than going through her agent, unaware that he was about to begin a decades-long battle with her. When the war broke out in Europe in 1939, Travers moved to New York with her adopted son Camillus to escape the London Blitz, working for the British Ministry of Information. It was here that Roy approached her about the rights to Poppins, and to his surprise, she wasn't interested. Travers had a keen interest in folklore and fairy tales, and she took issue with the way Disney had been adapting these stories to the screen. Walt wouldn't give up though, and after the war, continued to push Travers to give him the rights to the book. Many of the stories around the making of Mary Poppins have now entered into legend, especially the tempestuous relationship between the production and P.L. Travers. But at every turn, the film represented great artists working at the top of their game to create the best film they possibly could. Where the other live-action films had been able to cut corners, every rough edge of Mary Poppins needed to be sanded to perfection, every mechanism perfectly calibrated. It would be a struggle of many, many years to bring Mary Poppins to the screen. So, do you remember the very first time you would have seen Mary Poppins? I can't remember the very first time, but I watched it over and over. It probably was at Betty Betty Candy's house across the road. Um, I watched it over and over. Yeah. And what, so, what 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 do you think it was that drew you to it as a kid? Why was this a film that you wanted to watch over and over and over again? You know what? It's so having immersed myself in the role, it's quite hard to separate. Like, I it it sort of feels like two different people in a way, like the film as opposed to the character. I mean, it was so clever in the way that they represented a family that could be relatable for so many families, even though it was an English, you know, middle to upper class kind of family that didn't really, you, you know, the struggles on a world scale weren't much. It was the struggle of parenting that any parent can relate to and family dynamic that this kind of otherworldly character comes in and shakes things up in order to hold a mirror up to that family. Because we're so used to the idea, and particularly with other, with you know, if we're looking at Disney films before this, usually if there is a dysfunctional family, it's because there is an antagonist in that family. And the thing with the Banks family is there is no antagonist in them. There, you you come into that, you know, you walk into 
17 Cherry Tree Lane and you can just tell something's not working here, but you can't put your foot on exactly what it is. You know, the children, there's a disconnect between the children and, and the mother and the father and, you, and it's, it just, it, you know, it kind of, it, it, it needs someone to come in and just kind of gently put them all back into place. So, yeah, I guess, I, mean, I think it's an undervalued quality of this film that we obviously, we obviously talk so much about how appealing Mary Poppins is as a character, but the real heart of the film is this family dynamic that we have to watch evolve over the course of these two and a half hours. Yeah, because it's her effect on this vulnerable family that we actually, that's what takes us on the journey. Yeah, and of course she's magical and kind of <laughs> fabulous and like... And of course she's she, the best. She's, she's like this en- enigmatic kind of creature of that, you know, when first starting to delve into the role and one of my first goals was to pay such respect to Julie Andrews in the role and also an expectation of thousands of people coming to see the show wanting to be reminded of the film but also having to find my own truth within that. So that was, that was um, people said, oh, wasn't that challenging? For me it was just... And like an honour to be able to try and do that, but but at the same time, it was it was very much at the forefront of my mind initially when sort of characterising and and how do you navigate that? I mean, it's also you, you, it's it's one thing to have a character that obviously there is an iconic performance of that character previously, but also there's just such a wealth of material on Mary Poppins. You've not just got the film, but you have the the, the you know the the series of books by Travers. How do you begin? Like, how do you navigate approaching a character for which there is already such a huge legacy but also such a huge body of work about that character? Well, I am not an act, like, I'm not an academic actor. I'm, like, I, I'm not a well-read person. I, I'm very, very much kind of on the floor feeding off in the moment. I'm quite impulsive and you know, I've certainly don't say that that's the way to be, but that's the only way that I can be as an actor. So I didn't know much information about Mary Poppins before I got the role. And so I had to, you know, people would send me books and I would flick through it and, and start to educate myself. Something that I you know, I had no idea about P.L. Travers. I didn't know that she wrote the book. So, so I started to read about her. I didn't know that she was, you know, Australian. Um, very early on in the piece, I um, I flew up to the Maryborough Festival and the Mary Poppins Festival up there, and like it was mind blowing. I was like, I, I just I started to educate myself um, much more on where these stories had come from, and I remember reading a quote from her, uh, from P.L. Travers saying, you know, I was just the vessel. The character just came to me and I thought, oh, without sounding like a wanker, I I felt like that a little bit with the role. It was, it was, there was, there was immense discipline and a lot of stuff to learn and a lot of stuff to refine and practice. And, but there was also this kind of other thing that, you know, actors experience sometimes in their life where it was like this was just a role that felt at the time right for me and there was something else going on. Like it just felt like when I, the, the it didn't feel, there was a lot of disciplinary stuff that was very challenging of doing eight shows a week and it was a challenging role physically and vocally and stuff. But in terms of the actual 
characterization. Once I had gone through an incredibly supportive and rigorous six week rehearsal period with the amazing Cameron McIntosh production team and creative team, once that had happened, the transformation was quite easy for me um, because it did feel like something else was kind of going on, which sounds a bit esoteric or something, but it, it, it yeah. It, and I remember meeting um, Patricia Feltham, who was one of Peel Travers' best friends. She came to opening night in Melbourne and um, she was such a, a gracious beautiful older woman and she just said she would be so proud of this production and she said she will be sitting next she will be with me tonight watching the show or something and I kind of went oh wow (laughs) what a thing Uh, to be told wow yeah it was it was but but it was in it was so she said it in such an understated kind of way and, and such a truthful potent way I just went I guess when you're playing such an iconic character you can't you can't bring a lot of ego with you because it's not yours it's your it's yours to borrow for a period of time and hopefully honor for a whole new generation of people the stories but it came from the imagination of Peel Travers but I guess Peel Travers was saying it wasn't even mine the character she wasn't even mine it came from somewhere else so it's um yeah I, I just look at look at that time of playing that role as I was just a tiny, tiny piece in in the 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 global magic of that character. Now then, the qualifications. Item one, a cheery disposition. I am never cross. Item two, rosy cheeks. Obviously. Item three, play games all sorts. Well, I'm sure the children will find my games extremely diverting. Yeah, this paper, where did you get it from? I thought I'd toy it up. Once the war was over, Walt Disney continued to pursue the film rights to Mary Poppins. He had made a promise to Diane and Sharon that he would make the film for them, and he wasn't prepared to break that promise. In the early 1940s, Walt assigned story analysts and writers Inez Koch and Peggy Connell to do a feasibility breakdown on the book to see whether it would be suitable for adaptation. There was also some movement on negotiations after the war, but the deal fell apart when Travers insisted on final script approval, something Walt was unwilling to grant anyone, especially after the debacle with Roald Dahl on the Gremlins. Once again, progress ground to a halt. In the meantime, other parties began circling the rights to Mary Poppins. Actress Beatrice Lilly had tried in the late 1930s, and in the 1940s, composer Stephen Sondheim had composed a number of songs for a stage adaptation that never eventuated. Vincent Minnelli and Samuel Goldwyn had also tried to develop screen adaptations, but Travers' refusal to grant her final approval stopped all projects in their tracks. The closest anyone would come was a CBS television special in 1949 for the program Studio One, where Poppins was played by Mary Wicks. In the mid-1950s, Walt decided to try again, and this time he would take matters into his own hands. While visiting London to oversee one of his live-action films, he personally visited Travers at a home in Chelsea. The two formed a mutual respect for one another, Travers finding him far more amiable than she expected. Negotiations finally progressed with an agreement for the rights signed on June 3, 1960. It was an extraordinary relinquishing of power on Walt's part, with Travers demanding 5% of the profits, 
with an additional $100,000 guarantee and £1,000 for writing a treatment for the film, which she began in earnest with TV writer Donald Bull. Walt was determined to appease Travers with her concerns though, especially as the agreement did not yet grant him the screen rights. Even so, work could now finally begin on developing the project. While Travers worked on her treatment, Walt approached the Sherman brothers to begin work on the music. They were still relatively new to the studio and hadn't yet been made permanent members of staff, mostly working on pop songs for the live-action films. Outside of the animated films, Walt Disney Productions weren't in the business of making musicals, but the big-budget musical was a staple of Hollywood filmmaking. Mary Poppins might fit into that mould. He handed the book to the Shermans and asked them to come up with some songs and story ideas. At first, they weren't sure there was a film to be made from the book's episodic structure, but identified six chapters they thought might work. After we told him about our ideas and how wonderful we thought this project could be, he smiled and took a book out of his bookcase, turned around and took the book out, and it was Mary Poppins. He opened it up and pointed to the six chapters. He had underlined the very same six chapters that we had underlined. And at that moment, he said to us, you guys really like to work? And we said, oh, yeah, we sure do, Walt. He said, well, how'd you like to work for me? <laughs> and of course, he said, yes, yes. And uh, that was when we became members of the family and he, we brought us, he brought us on staff. The Shermans had also composed an initial collection of songs based on those chapters, many of which would not only end up in the final film, but be amongst the most beloved songs in any Disney film. Among them were supercalifragilisticexpialidocious and Jolly Holiday, but the one that caught Walt's attention was a gentle, melancholy song they had initially called Tuppence a Bag, now known as Feed the Birds. When they had finished presenting him with what they had, Walt asked them to play that song again. It would become the emotional heart of the film. Symbolically, Tuppence a Bag has nothing to do with tuppence or breadcrumbs, Richard Sherman later remembered. It's about the fact that it doesn't take much to give love, that it costs very little to make a difference in other people's lives. To help the Shermans with the adaptation, Walt assigned story artist Don DeGrady to the project. He had started as a production designer on Dumbo, and by the start of the 1960s had worked on a number of the live-action films as a story consultant. DeGrady and the Shermans threw ideas back and forth, refashioning the episodes of the novel into a cohesive narrative, while DeGrady drew these ideas up as story sketches. They decided to expand the part of Bert from a supporting character to a co-lead, possibly to attract the attention of actor Cary Grant, who Walt was courting for the part. They also decided that the central conflict should be with the parents, particularly George Banks, rather than with the children. In March 1961, P.L. Travers travelled to Los Angeles to visit the studio at Burbank, on invitation from Walt. They were to present her with the work they had done in the hopes that she would finally grant them the rights. When we sat down with Mrs. Travers to present our treatment, remembered Richard Sherman, she hated everything we had done, disliked it with a passion. For every chapter we developed, she had a definite feeling we had selected the worst one. She started naming chapters we felt we should adapt, and they were the ones we thought were absolutely unusable. The team of Walt, Travers, DeGrady and the Shermans then began working through the treatment. But the first day was such a disaster, with Travers arguing emphatically with Walt that she demanded to be flown back to New York. Determined to appease her, Walt convinced her to stay. The next day, Walt himself left for Palm Springs, 
saying to the team as he left, she's all yours. From now on, as per Travers' request, all of the meetings will be documented by stenographer and tape recording. Now, I see the Cherry Tree Lane as not too townified on one side of the park. And we'll get you a photograph of uh, 50 Smith Street in order to uh, see that the house is really quite like that, but it has more of a garden than my house. But it might be useful and amusing to put it in as my house. These recordings reveal the arduous, exacting nature of Travers's criticisms. She tears apart every single detail of the treatment, often giving contradicting opinions as she herself battles with how she feels her work should be translated to the screen. Often, she would read all the characters, calling on her experiences as an actor. In the process, she made significant contributions that would shape not just the narrative, but the look and tone of the film. It was Travers who suggested that they should shift the setting from London in the 1930s to the Edwardian era in 1910. She also offered a tantalising view into the psychology of Mary Poppins herself. Mary Poppins comes with a deep intent and we must ask ourselves in this play what she comes for. And my idea is, and probably you'll agree with me, she comes to find something for herself as well as to bring something. And the children, after the tape things, they find that this magic thing is true and they have seen her. And why did you come? And she says, I came to find something. One of her greatest objections was the way George and Winifred Banks changed over the course of the film. She argued that they shouldn't change, that they should be good parents from the beginning. But DeGrady and the Shermans countered that this wouldn't give Mary Poppins motivation to be there in the first place. The arguments in the recordings are rigorous and frustrating, but reveal the enormous investment they all had in making the film a success. Even Travers, often critical of the absurdity of the Sherman's lyrics, can be heard humming along. When Walt returned from Palm Springs, he was very pleased with the work that had been done, and especially that from Travers. As a show of good faith, he made her a consultant on the film. Now that the treatment had been cracked, the task of writing the screenplay was eventually handed to Bill Walsh, who delivered a witty, energetic and thrilling screenplay that built perfectly on the work that DeGrady and the Shermans had done. Travers still had enormous objections to the film, but was happy enough to finally hand the film rights over to Walt. After more than 20 years, he could finally bring this dream project to the screen. Now, he had to find the perfect Mary Poppins. And why do you think she's a character that people find so arresting? Why, why is Mary Poppins as a figure, both in you know, the original film, in the sequel, in the stage production, in the books, in all the different forms that she's presented in, why do you think we are so drawn to her as a figure and an icon? What is it about her? Well, she's sort of, she's incredibly commanding, isn't she? So she doesn't look for a response from, she doesn't care. Like where she doesn't, she's so uh, assertive and secure in herself that she doesn't look for confirmation from other people. It's like, I've arrived, but there also isn't a cockiness to that. It's just, I've arrived, I'm here to help. I will help because I'm brilliant, but I'm not going to harp on it. It's just, I'm here, I'm wonderful, I'm magical, I'm from another place, I'll come from a period for a period of time. But she's also kind of, um, warm when she needs to be, firm when she needs to be. She's sort of sexy at times, but then asexual. And 
and so funny in this matter-of-fact way. It's quite an amazing balance that she can walk into a room, instantly take command of it, put everybody in their place in a way that makes everybody feel like they're seen and heard, but that it's clear that she's in charge and never at any point be condescending. It's the, it's, and she says some withering things to people, but she never, she does it in a way where you just go, everyone just accepts it because that's who Mary Poppins is. How important do you think it is that we don't know anything about her? Because we don't have any backs. She just flies in, particularly in the context of the film, she just flies in when the wind changes and then flies off when it, when it changes again. How important do you think it is that we have no backstory for who or what this person is? Well, I guess that's the, the brilliance of the, of the initial storytelling is that we can project whatever we want individually onto her. So who Mary Poppins is for one person is, is different for another. And, yeah, I remember Sir Richard Eyre, who was the original director of Mary Poppins, the stage musical, and James Powell, the director in Australia, saying at a point sort of very close to opening night and we were were workshopping and I said, I just, I can't quite put my finger on it and we were just discussing some character stuff and then I said, oh, it's like the loudest person in the room isn't the most powerful. Often the quietest person in the room is the most commanding and I just, I, I kind of, I was I was trying so hard to make it work and, you know, I was dancing my heart out and singing my heart out and trying to use real comic chops and then I went, oh, I haven't found her relaxation. I haven't found the power in her silence and her stillness. In the books and in the film, there's this effortlessness to, to Julie Andrews' portrayal and, and to this this kind of ease that Mary Poppins swans in. She's so put together. She's so magical. She's so wise. She knows exactly what to say, what not to say at exactly the right time. And that's hard to create on stage. <laughs> like it's, but also on film, I imagine. But I mean, for, the, for, for, for Julie Andrews, there's a camera there and the camera is much closer and can capture the smallest tiny details on stage, particularly in a production as huge as Mary Poppins is on stage. You kind of have to, it, I imagine it would be a very difficult balance to go, I have to, I have to be the cent, like the central pivot point of what it, or the, or the audience is seeing. But this is a character whose job is to both be the pivot point but not but be invisible at the same time. Like her job is to be in command and nobody knows she is in command. And, I mean, it's the, it's the real surprise because, I mean, you know, obviously this film has such a, a huge legacy and there are so many legends around it and obviously the fact of, like, this is her first role and she wins an Oscar for it and yet you walk, every time I watch it, the thing that takes me by surprise is how small a performance it is, certainly compared to how big... Dick Van Dyke is and David Tomlinson and everyone's being so bombastic and yet she's just very still, very quiet, only moves when absolutely necessary. Um, it's quite, like it's, it kind of speaks to the immense power, not just of her performance, but of the immense power of the character that the thing of just, yes, yeah, stillness and silence and being and listening is in some ways much more powerful than constantly rattling off long diatribes about what it is to work in a bank. Yes, when you say that, it makes me think of that beautiful image in the film of her with the bird by the window and there's this immense, I mean, she has such a delicate, beautiful voice anyway, but there's this delicacy to her interaction which I guess is with 
a fake bird. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, it's basically with a robot. She's literally a robot. holding a robot on her finger. But there's this femininity and this delicate kind of sensuality and gentleness to that relationship, yet then she could be quite overpowering and cross and domineering, like, you know, and the and the kind of the innocent flirtation with Bert and the and the fact that we think, you know, that she's not a mother, yet she has this relationship with the kids, you know, from P.L. Trevor's own life. Like it was fascinating reading about that and where where that came from and, and reflecting back on it now because I didn't have children when I played Mary Poppins and now reflecting back on it and thinking even about the kids in the show that, you know, we had a cast of children that would revolve each night because they obviously couldn't do each show and just the immense responsibility but pride in, in you know, those kids are all adults now and I'm just thinking back and going, wow, what was it like to be part of that story, that iconic story playing Michael and Jane Banks? Why do you always complicate things that are really quite simple? Give me your hand, please, Michael. Don't slouch. One, two... Over the course of our episodes on the Silver Age of Disney Animation, we're taking a look at each of the nine old men, the core team of animators that defined the classic Disney style, and at their individual contributions to the art of animation. In this episode, we look at the bombastic work of John Lounsbury. The youngest of the nine old men, and the youngest of three sons, John Lounsbury was born on March 9, 1911, in Cincinnati, Ohio, and grew up in Colorado. In 1932, after receiving his diploma from the Art Institute of Denver, he moved to Los Angeles and began working as a freelance artist while studying illustration at the Art Center School of Design. It was here that one of his instructors recommended him to Walt Disney Productions, and Lounsbury joined the studio on July 2, 1935. To begin with, Lounsbury was assigned to many of the classic Pluto shorts, but like many of the staff, was pulled onto Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, working as an assistant animator. His first promotion to animator on a feature would be with Pinocchio, but his breakthrough would be on the Dance of the Hours sequence in Fantasia, where he revealed a tremendous aptitude with both animal characters and comedy. He would later say that the lead alligator, Ben Alligator, was his favourite character he ever worked on. For Dumbo, he was promoted to animation director and delivered another iconic character with his work on Timothy Q. Mouse. Over the following decades, Lounsbury would continue to contribute some of the most energetic and comic characters in the Disney animated features. While he was never assigned sole responsibility on any major characters, his hand would guide many of the great supporting players, such as Tony and Joe in Lady and the Tramp, the Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland, the wolf in The Sword and Stone, and the introductory scenes of Ichabod Crane in The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. For the animated sequence in Mary Poppins, Lounsbury was in charge of the farm animals that sing to Mary and Bert. Despite his shy personality, he would inject any film he was working on with a strong sense of fun and play. Hardly subtle, said Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson, John's characters were always fun to watch. As the Silver Age came to an end, John Lounsbury would continue to push his abilities, especially as the films put a greater emphasis on animal characters. Perhaps his most extraordinary work through the 1970s was with the beloved Winnie the Pooh shorts, 
He served as directing animator on the first two, Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree in 1966 and Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day in 1968, before being promoted to director on Winnie the Pooh and Ticker 2 in 1974, which received an Academy Award nomination. Sadly, on February 13, 1976, while serving as director on The Rescuers, John Lounsbury died at the age of 64. Even though he was the youngest of the nine old men, he was the first to pass away. The work of John Lounsbury is the perfect expression of the adage that there are no small parts, only small actors. Looking through the characters he contributed to is a star gallery of the supporting players of the classic Disney animated films, each one incredibly memorable, scene-stealing and incredibly funny. What makes them so impactful is the marriage of comedy and humanity and an astounding understanding of behaviour and timing. He was inducted as a Disney legend in 1989. When I've shown my daughters the film of Mary Poppins, they they sort of initially watched it like, well, this is an olden days film, but then were quite absorbed and you go, wow, it's still, it still gets them, still gets them in. Yeah, because it does, it is... It constantly subverts your expectations of what it should do. It's 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 that kind of we're talking about you know that thing of it's of it being you know, a really beautifully structured piece of storytelling. Where I mean, the surprise that I had rewatching it because I hadn't watched it for a few years before I started prepping for this, and the surprise I had with it was that the thematic heart of the film doesn't actually kind of cement itself until maybe an hour in. You've got to go through the jumping into the chalk painting and going up onto the roof with Uncle Albert. You go through all of these fantastical. Still, even by 2021 standards, astounding visual sequences. Like, I still look at the Jolly Holiday chalk painting sequence and just go, I, like, I know how you did that, but I don't believe that you pulled that off. Um, it's, but the fact that like, it pulls you in, it grabs your imagination, your attention, and then very carefully starts to make it clear to you what this film is actually about. What is the story that it's trying to tell? Which is a brilliant piece of structural wizardry because it, it, you know, for a little kid, you want to get to getting into the chalk painting as quickly as you can, or her making all the objects in the room move around, or just the simple beauty of a carpet bag that you can take anything out of. Because the minute you see that, your brain goes, "I've never seen that before. I've never seen anything like that before." Yeah, and I, I think it was, a, I think there were many points of tension, but I think it, that animation was definitely a point of tension between <laughs> Peel Travers and Walt Disney. I think that was the, that was, it was interesting to hear when Richard Sherman came out for opening night of Melbourne, which you can imagine, I just got a knock on my dressing room door a few days before Tech Week started. And they kind of opened and went, Verity, we'd like to introduce you to Richard Sherman. And I went, hello, hello. And he was like, it was just so, he was the most beautiful man, like just, um, that American warm, lovely, just accomplished, just divine. And he would just rattle off stories about, you know, the film and and then the musical and then why this song was removed from the musical that was in the film and why we decided. And just I just stood there going, wow, like you're royalty and, he, and yet this amazing, humble, warm man just still completely buzzing off of creating like I think his brother had died very recently before that and so it was like you still 
it was just so inspiring to be around such an accomplished person that still was about the work and the making of the art. And I thought, wow, that would, yeah, it was just very inspiring. And that's direct contact with the legacy of the work that you're doing. You know, it, you know, it's it's, you know, there are a few people alive that can offer that direct link to the legacy of Mary Poppins, both as a film, but also as as a cultural icon. And he's so intrinsic to, you know, because it's quite, it's kind of amazing thinking about, you know, that, you know, him and his brother are two young men who've never really done anything of this scale before, have only just kind of been brought onto Disney to write a few songs for a few live action films. And Walt just plops this book down in front of them and goes, what do you make of this? And out of this 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 moment of just here's a thing. What do you think? They write one of the greatest musical scores ever written. You know, at a young age, they're just kind of like you can feel so much of you can feel so much of of, of young artists trying to do the best they possibly can in the musical language of this film, um, which is which I imagine would have been incredibly overwhelming to to have contact with in in meeting him. Yeah, well, it's just like, you know, opening, you know, seeing like any any person that I, I don't get to, um, I, like, I mean, I've, I've been lucky enough to meet pretty famous people in my time, but, and I don't really get starstruck. I get, I get people struck, you know, like I don't get struck by the star. I get struck by... Oh, you're this incredible person, and you're lovely, and you're humble, and you're so skilled. As opposed to, wow, you're a star, and you you have this history. It was it the thing that I was struck by was that he was so generous of spirit to say he wasn't coming in and going, well, you're the fourth Mary Poppins that's played this around the world, and I've seen this a million times over. I've been to lots of opening nights, and I actually am the creator of the. You know, it was it wasn't that at all. It was right down to business. Verity, I love what you're doing. Let's have a chat about this. In scene three, on this note, do you want to, and I was like, sure, like, yes. And there was a lot of that. There was a lot of overseas creatives knocking on the door each night. And and it was such a learning curve for me that this is part of my job. This is my job to take on board rather than get overwhelmed by the massiveness of these people of and the feedback, it was to go, okay, how do I sift out this feedback and and let it aid the performance leading up to opening night? And that happened right up until five minutes before opening night, which is stressful at the time. But also I look back and go, wow, I, I got to be in a dressing room with him and take feedback from a very, very special creative. What do the simple folk do? To help them escape when they're blue. The shepherd who is ailing, the milkmaid who is glum, the cobbler who is wailing from nailing his thumb. When they're beset and besieged, the folk not noblessly obliged. However, do they manage to shed their weary lot? Oh, what do simple folk do? On the night of March 19, 1961, Richard Sherman, Robert Sherman, Don DeGrady, and Walt's secretary Tommy Wilk were all tuned in to the wildly popular Ed Sullivan show. Camelot, the new musical adaptation of The Once and Future King, had just opened on Broadway, and Sullivan was featuring on the show its two leads, Richard Burton 
and Julie Andrews. Watching the pair perform What Do the Simple Folk Do, all four realised they had found their Mary Poppins. The next day, they raced to the studio to find Walt. Julie Andrews had been performing since 1945 at the age of 10, beginning in musical halls in England with her parents. In 1954, she made her Broadway debut in The Boyfriend, and two years later, she delivered one of the great star-making performances as Eliza Doolittle in Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe's My Fair Lady, garnering her ecstatic reviews. This success led to her once again working with Lerner and Lowe on Camelot, but apart from the Rodgers and Hammerstein television special of Cinderella in 1957, Andrews had not made the transition to film. Encouraged by Tommy Wilk, Walt made the trip to New York to see Camelot and to see Andrews for himself. As we have already seen, this was a fortuitous night for another Disney production, convincing Walt to choose the Sword and the Stone over Chanticleer, but it would have an even greater impact on Mary Poppins. Walt had already considered a number of potential actors for the part, including Mary Martin, who was appearing on Broadway in The Sound of Music, and Betty Davis. And P.L. Travers had even taken it upon herself to approach Audrey Hepburn to play the part. When Walt saw Julie Andrews, though, he knew he had found his Mary Poppins. Well, uh, I went uh, to New York and I caught the performance of Camelot. Of course, I'd heard the records and things, but it was Camelot that I saw her in. And then I went backstage and I tried to talk her into the thing and uh, I tried to convince her I was uh, capable of making a a picture with uh, live actors as well as cartoons. I didn't know what she thought of me and everything. I think I put on quite a, uh, an act there that night, didn't I? <laughs> Andrews was hesitant, having recently fallen pregnant, but Walt insisted, inviting her to visit the studio. He then turned to her husband, Tony Walton, asking what he did for a living, and when he replied that he was a designer, told him to come along too and to bring his portfolio. During their visit, Walt courted Andrews by showing her the storyboards and concept art, and having the Shermans perform the score for her. The thing that was wonderfully appealing was that my background, long before I had been on Broadway, was vaudeville and music hall, she recalled in 1998. The songs they played me on that first day were wonderfully reminiscent. They had that knockdown, drag-out quality of the good old vaudeville songs, and I loved them. Andrews was still unsure though, wanting to return to London to give birth, but Walt assured her that he would wait for her, and also offered Walton a job as designer on the film. There was another issue, as well as the pregnancy, that weighed on Andrews's mind. Following the success of My Fair Lady, Warner Brothers studio Jack Warner had bought the film rights, and was setting up the film as a major production. While her co-star Rex Harrison had been announced to reprise the role of Henry Higgins in the film, there had been no news as to whether the same would happen for Andrews. In the end, Warner decided that she didn't have the star power to carry the film, and the role of Eliza Doolittle was offered to Audrey Hepburn. With the matter of My Fair Lady settled, Andrews finally agreed to play Mary Poppins, but now had one more hurdle to jump, P.L. Travers. The author insisted on having her say in the casting, and after speaking with Andrews over the phone, gave her blessing. This is Pamela Travers. And I practically sat up in bed and I said, oh, Miss Travers, I gasped, well, how lovely of you to call. I didn't know her or anything. And yes, she said, well, talk to me. Uh, um, well, what can I tell you? I, I just gave birth to our daughter yesterday. I'm feeling a little bit groggy at the moment, Miss Travers. Oh, well, I understand you'll be playing the role of Mary Poppins. 
Yes. Well, you're far too pretty, of course, but you've got the right nose for it. <laughs> and it was such an easy thing to do to say, yes, thank you, Mr. Disney. I would love to do that movie because everything seemed to come full circle because all the stuff in Hopkins uh, had that rum-ti-tum quality of being vaudeville. And all of a sudden I thought, right, I can, I, I, I'm home because this I can embrace and perhaps bring something to. And... Um, Again, in the kindest hands possible, um, I was taught how to make a movie, and that was the beginning of that. How lucky can anybody get losing out on My Fair Lady and three months later being asked to do Mary Poppins? It was also through television and Broadway that Walt found his Bert. Actor and comedian Dick Van Dyke had become a staple of American lounge rooms with his hugely popular television show, The Dick Van Dyke Show and had also garnered great acclaim for his lead performance in Bye Bye Birdie on Broadway in 1960 and 1961. Walt reached out to Van Dyke, and the two men connected over their shared concerns at the direction Hollywood was heading, leaning towards what they thought of as dirty pictures. It also helped that Van Dyke was an incredibly skilled mime and physical comedian, and despite an atrocious Cockney accent and concerns from Travers, was a perfect fit for the part. And I was, he took me around and showed me the storyboards. The Sherman Brothers played me the score and I just, it was my dream to do a Walt Disney movie of that kind, you know, a family movie for kids. I was overjoyed. Rounding out the rest of the cast were a superb collection of acclaimed British character actors, led by David Tomlinson as George Banks. Walt was determined to cast Glynis Johns as Winifred Banks, but Johns remarked that she could be convinced if she had a really good solo number. Walt improvised, saying that the Shermans had a really good number that they would show her after lunch. In fact, they didn't have a number at all, and frantically wrote one using music from the song they'd rejected. The result was the show-stopping Sister Suffragette. Another inspired piece of casting was Elsa Lancaster as Katie Nanna, most famous as the iconic bride in Bride of Frankenstein. For the crucial roles of Jane and Michael Banks, Walt cast Karen Dotrice and Michael Garber, two young British child actors who had appeared together in another Disney production, The Three Lives of Thomasina, in 1963. In the meantime, the Sherman brothers were looking for the perfect collaborator to bring their music to life. After their experiences on The Sword and the Stone, the Shermans decided to compose both the songs and the score but didn't have the skills to orchestrate them for a musical film of this scale. They began listening to popular Broadway cast albums and eventually settled on Erwin Kostel, who had recently worked on the Oscar-winning film adaptation of West Side Story. Their choice would elevate the music of Mary Poppins to something truly extraordinary. Kostel crafting their music into a rambunctious, energetic and incredibly beautiful score. When I do a picture, he remarked, I try to use the songs as much as possible you should try and incorporate it into the kind of background music you write. The film would be entirely shot on the studio backlot, so the task fell to the production design team, including Tony Walton, to bring Edwardian London to life. They approached it with a very specific design aesthetic in mind, that it should look more like a Broadway musical than a realistic recreation of the period. To fill out the scale of the City of London, artist Peter Ellenshaw created over 100 extraordinary map paintings for the film, used extensively throughout. Filming on Mary Poppins began on May 6, 1963, and the enthusiasm throughout production was palpable. 
Disney had never made a live-action film of this scale before, let alone a musical, and yet by all accounts, the shoot went without any significant dramas. For the enormous dance sequences, Dick Van Dyke recommended choreographers Dee Dee Wood and Mark Brough, who would put their skills to the test, creating some of the most complex and energetic dances on film. Andrews was concerned that her inexperience with film would put her at a disadvantage, but thanks to the care and patience of veteran Disney director Robert Stevenson, she began to light up every frame she was in. During production, she kept a constant correspondence with P.L. Travers, assuring her that all was well and the film was turning into something special. As well as it was going though, there were still a number of unknowns. As always, Walt was determined to push the boundaries and offer audiences something they had never seen before. And this meant pushing special effects technology to new limits. It was all well and good to write about jumping into chalk drawings or walking on clouds and flying with umbrellas. But how on earth would you actually do that on screen? So how does, for the people who are listening who don't know the musical as well as the film, how does the musical build on or depart from or what is its relationship with the film and the other works by P.L. Travers on, on, on Poppins? Well, I don't, I mean, I don't presume to be an expert. I'm sure there's like people that are much, much more <laughs> experts than me on the actual um, adaptation of it and and why. I mean, in rehearsals, we spoke about why things were so, you know, the bank scene in the musical kind of isn't really there. And the it's it's very different, the kind of journey in some ways. But then other things like Feed the Birds is really a, a beautiful, very exact transplant of of the film. So I mean the Cameron Mackintosh and Disney's team were so clever at spending time and money, which I guess Walt Disney was so clever at as well, in terms of going, let's keep workshopping this until it's right. This is too important. And I know Cameron Mackintosh had a really hard time convincing to do a musical. I think it was uh, it was decades, I think, to get the rights. Because he was, it was a pet project for him, wasn't it? Because I remember, I think I remember reading that this was something he really wanted to do and P.L. Travers was very resistant to the idea of doing anything. J- just like the film. I think she was just like, no, that, um, yeah, so it was a long process and I, um, I'm um, sure he would be better at talking about w- with that process. But as far as I know, finally they kind of went, Yes, this is it. We will do this justice, and and the Australian cast was the sort of end outcome of that. I think so. It had opened on the West End, and it had played in New York, and and we were we were you know given the time to workshop things. So it wasn't just a transplanted international musical that came that went okay we need you to do exactly what they did they spent time going well how can we make this better and how can we pay even more tribute to the film but put our own stamp on it in terms of a musical so I think the it was just like that thing that happens with shows every now and then where all the ingredients of every department the the design department costumes sound the musical team the choreographers, the director, like everything was just, it was such an amazing team that the 
you know, the way that the sets open like a pop-up book, it was, it was very much respecting the fact that first and foremost, this was a book and a series of books and this character, you know, I mean, in comparison to the illustrations in the books, Julie Andrews is a very pretty version of Mary Poppins, which, you know, I understand that in the Walt Disney Hollywood world that that's what they felt would work, yet she doesn't play, I don't think Julie Andrews plays a pretty woman. She doesn't She doesn't play on that. She just happens to be naturally beautiful, but she she doesn't play a woman. So I think that's why she has that amazing command and sometimes is scary because she's not trying to play a kind of beautiful fairy, you know, princessy type character. Almost as if she doesn't she's she's entering the world on her own terms by her own rules and rules that are defined. I hadn't really thought about this until you pointed like you, you said that, but like almost as if it's she's a woman refusing to play by the ro- the roles that men would want to to, to adhere to like realistically realistically you know when a nanny walks in the door all of these men would want you know like katie nana walks in and you know she's you know a much older woman and she's got you know a lot you new know, layers of all of these like ratty clothes and that kind of stuff and so she fits the, the idea of like the non-threatening scary commanding but you know inconsequential nanny that will disappear into the background she fits with the idea about what Mr. Banks and Mrs. Banks think a nanny should look like. And in walks Julie Andrews, as Mary, uh, you know, in walks Mary Poppins, and she's beautiful, but she's no, she's dressed in very similar clothes to what Katie Nanny is dressed in, and her her demeanour is not in any way subservient or in any way apologetic. She's just like, no, I'm here. I'm here, and I'm here to do a job, and I'm going to do my job very well. And like that great moment where, you know, Mr. Banks asks, you know, asks her to explain herself, and she goes, I never explain anything. And she just says it and just walks off. And he's just like, oh, well, I can't argue with that, can I? And she's completely unaffected as to the response from anyone. So she dishes it out. And that is kind of otherworldly. Like she, it could come across as insensitive, but it's not. Unempathetic to it, but it isn't. I think it's just that she, as you say, it's a really interesting point that you bring up that she hasn't been in the <laughs> living in that world long enough to be affected by how a woman should present. And also the fact that she takes everything on face value. I mean, nothing about the magical things that happens that happen around her, the magical things that she that she is responsible for. She's never bemused by them. She never kind of, she doesn't walk around with like ogle-eyed joy, but she also doesn't dismiss them. She Like she thinks about the practicalities of turning a cloud into a staircase and walking up a cloud as the same practicalities as, no, you have to take your medicine before you go to bed or, no, it's a good idea to go take the children to the bank so they can learn something about the world. Like, everything is... the She sees the world in a very practical, direct manner, which is both very grounding and very inspiring at the same time. It's amazing that a character that... You know, you imagine a character that's full of joy would be someone like Snow White who runs around gooey-eyed and fawning and, you know, very much in a kind of childlike, innocent manner. There is so much joy in the way that Mary Poppins approaches the world and approaches her job, but she, but her approach is not to kind of be over the top about it. Yeah, well, she doesn't express emotionally about it. We get to revel in it as the audience and the children get to enjoy it. So in Jolly Holiday, none of it is a surprise to her, but for the children, it's just every corner is this joyous surprise. Yeah, and it was, you know, it was interesting trying to capture that on stage because it was, it was 
so quick, like Jolly Holiday, as opposed to being in an animation in the film where she clicked her fingers and the scene changed. The scenes had to change on stage and it was like I remember having it running off for the the kind of initial Jolly Holiday reveal where we turned from our normal everyday clothes into this colourful rainbow of, of costumes and there would be four dresses and wiggies standing side stage ready to literally go and then I would be back on and if the slightest bobby pin or, you know, um, sleeve was out of whack, the whole thing would be. So we had this whole backstage. The choreography backstage was almost as full on as the choreography on stage to make it magical and it was dangerous. Like there would be sets sliding in and I think the the respect that the cast and the discipline that the cast had because knowing that the, the show was so seamless in the way that it moved at such a fast pace, you'd kind of come to work and be ready. You'd just be on. There was no There was no room really for variation in that sense. How much did the costume design and the production design and the makeup design in the production help you in discovering and informing the character and how much say, because obviously you know, I imagine a lot of the stuff would exist um, from the West End production, but with the further developments that happened with the Australian production, did you have any input into that process? Well, for me, like in any role, it, it's, you know, like lots of actors, I think you put the costume and wig on and that's the final dot for you and like there, there she is. I know the costume designer was really um, adamant and rightly so about doing justice to the materials of the day. So my jackets were all woolen, like heavy duty of the that era. Like so they were heavy and a corset. And so when we, you know, opened in Brisbane, it was like, whoa, it was uh it was really there were lots of layers to the costume. And but you know, putting that corset on, it immediately just changed my posture and um, you know, the the boots were all lace-up boots, you know, like they they were true to the time that the costume design was just and and working with those designers that take such pride in the slightest bit of lace on the end of your sleeve or the, you know, that's why they are the top of the trade because they, you know, this curl in the wig needs to move slightly forward here and it just, yeah, the, the specificity is just gorgeous to watch. And I can imagine the setting, like the time setting of the early 1900s would also have been very instructive in terms of approaches to voice, character, accent, all those kinds of things, particularly because it's not only is it so intrinsic to the design, it's also so intrinsic to the music, like the composition itself is so, is draws so much on vaudeville and music hall of, of England in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Yeah, I can imagine that would have been very, uh, another useful way of kind of navigating who your version of Poppins might be. Yes, and it was interesting because if you were, if she wasn't so deeply ingrained in the, the world's psyche as Julie Andrews, and Julie Andrews has such an iconic accent herself, it was it was like I felt I needed to really find a fine line between her accent and what I felt Mary Poppins would sound like, and myself. So, yeah, there was, it was it was fun playing with particularly vowel shapes and stuff. That, um, and also, you know, I'm I'm a big believer that we shouldn't have a a, a, a kind of um, jolting change between the spoken voice into song. I just find that in musicals, I just go, you know, I'm reciting, and no, I start to sing. It's like, oh, I just find it 
bizarre that suddenly someone drops out of character to sing. So it it was really interesting exploring being influenced by Julie Andrews' accent as Mary Poppins, then having to go into more musical theatre songs than than the film. That was really interesting and and you know the Michael Tyack and his team um, were just amazing in terms of when the show when you start to get into a run and going oh it's starting when you've gotten over lots of nerves and where am I supposed to be standing and doing 500 things at once then starting to hear oh listen to that beautiful trumpet line that that's in the film as well there in that line or you know starting to know the show so well and appreciate all the components that come together to tell this story um, and then going back and watching the film and going oh yeah right they really took that arrangement straight out of the film and put it in there or they totally changed that arrangement there to suit the stage show. During a story meeting on the Jolly Holiday sequence, Don DeGrady threw in the idea that Mary and Bert could be served by a troop of waiters. Walt's eyes lit up. I have a better idea, he said. What if they were penguins? This was the moment where the decision to combine live action and animation in Mary Poppins was born. A decision that, while not groundbreaking in conception, would be in its execution. Disney had broken ground with their optical printing techniques to combine the two elements on the three caballeros, but by the time Mary Poppins had entered production, that process was nearly 20 years old. A more sophisticated method was needed, and once again, Ub Iwerks came to the rescue. He had been looking into a new sodium vapour process, an adaptation of the chroma key or blue screen method which had been developed by RKO in the 1930s. The principle was essentially the same, with actors filmed in front of a white screen lit with powerful sodium vapour lights whose yellow tint did not register on the colour spectrum for the red, green or blue layers of the Technicolor film. But this process offered a more reliable image than the blue screen process was able to produce at the time. While there was inevitably colour bleed and loss of edge detail with blue screen, the sodium vapour process required less re-exposure during the matte process that combined the elements together. The camera was fitted with a beam-splitter prism, which captured the image on two separate strips of film. One preserved the red, blue and green layers while eliminating the yellow from the sodium vapour lights, while the other was a fine grain black and white film that was extremely sensitive to it. This meant that there was no restrictions on the production in what colours they could use for costumes, makeup and props. The level of detail also allowed for finer textures, such as the veil on Mary's hat. Both the blue screen and sodium vapour processes were developed by American engineer and inventor Wadworth E. Pohl. Sodium vapour was first used for the Arthur J. Rank organisation film Plain Sailing in 1956, and as with any new technology, soon caught the attention of Disney. Ub Iwerks purchased the rights to the process for $250,000, and along with Pohl and fellow engineering inventor Pedro Vlahos, began developing the technique further for Mary Poppins. It would be the most extensive and high-profile use of sodium vapour until that point. When the cast of Mary Poppins stepped onto the soundstage to begin filming the animated sequence, they were met with the unusual sight of a piece of scenic floor and a large yellow mustard screen. In any behind-the-scenes footage of the sequence, the yellow screen is simply empty black space, as the camera isn't capturing the sodium vapour light. But in still photographs, you can see the large bright screen behind them. 
Because of the technology, it took far longer to film these scenes than usual, and it was to the film's great advantage that the sequence would be driven by two experienced stage actors accustomed to using their imaginations. Karen Dotrice and Michael Garber required a bit more help. Because the special effects were filled in later, remembered Dotrice, we had these large sweaty prop guys in braces dancing about with cut-out horses and penguins to show us what was going on. They both had to try very hard not to cuss in front of us children. We had the horses to react to and, and the, the geese and then that little sly fox sitting next to us. But in actual fact, it was just a cardboard cutout with a, with a crew member sort of moving it around, trying to make us excited. And I couldn't conceive of what they meant that there was going to be animation put in afterwards. So Walt and, and obviously that fantastic director, Robert Stevenson, he just made it so exciting to come to work and to keep especially two little bratty kids completely occupied. The problem was that a lot of the time they weren't entirely sure what it was they were supposed to be reacting to. Director Robert Stevenson had storyboarded the sequence, but though such a sequence would today be carefully planned in advance with the visual effects animators before filming, Walt instructed Stevenson not to worry about the animation while he was filming, perhaps concerned that doing so would impede Andrews and Van Dyke from giving free and spontaneous performances. This made an already difficult assignment for the animation staff all the more so. Walt called on the best of the best for the animated sequence in Mary Poppins, with veteran Hamilton Lusk directing and many of the nine old men called on to animate. There isn't a lot of information about how the scene was realised, though by all accounts, the lack of planning on set made the process a difficult one. The animators would fuss and complain and call a few names, remembered Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson, but in the end, he would become more inventive and more entertaining than he would have been if everything had been made easy for him. No animator would ever back away from such a challenge. Walt knew that too. For the centerpiece moment where Bert dances with the penguin waiters, Frank Thomas achieved the extraordinary. Working with the flailing spontaneity of Van Dyke as he danced with no one, and giving the illusion that every step was considered with the penguins in mind. So, uh, when I'd get over on the stage, I'd say, where am I going to put my penguins? I'd say, this storyboard isn't going to work. And, and then the, they would all follow Dick Van Dyke around uh, on the story sketches, you know. But as I'd get the film of Dick actually doing the dance, here's his feet flying all around and stepping on my penguins. And, you know, you animate a penguin drawing after drawing after drawing after drawing only to have it stepped on when it gets down here. How are you going to know ahead of time where he's going to be and where Dick Van Dyke's going to be? So I was losing more penguins every day. I had them duck and I had them jump and I had them get out of the way any way they could. But all of that worked. Walt was right. But, uh, it forced us to be more imaginative and we were able to come up with a result that's quite different actually from what's on the storyboard. But uh, I think it works well. Iwerks was also working on a solution to the problem presented by the Xerox process. By the time Sleeping Beauty had entered production, the Incas were using a wide spectrum of colours for their tapered lines. But colour hadn't been something the Xerox machine was capable of replicating. For Mary Poppins, Iwerks had been able to solve this problem, but only to a point. The process could now accommodate for coloured lines, but only one at a time which meant that a single cell needed to be printed with multiple layers, depending on the amount of colours used. If a certain colour wasn't possible, or if the cell was no longer able to accommodate any more layers, the small remaining staff of Incas would do it by hand. 
Recording the vocals for the sequence became a labour of love for the entire Mary Poppins production team, with many of the crew lending their voices and musical skills to the many characters that Mary, Bert and the children meet in the chalk drawing. For supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, Richard Sherman can be heard playing the kazoo, and Julie Andrews plays one of the Cockney singers. This barely scratches the surface of the remarkable visual and practical effects used on Mary Poppins, including tipping gimbals and wires for the visit to Uncle Albert, and a set of spongy stairs for the climb up the clouds. In many cases, Karen Dotrice and Michael Garber weren't shown how the effects would work before filming, so many of their reactions in the film, including Mary pulling impossible objects out of her carpet bag, were their genuine reactions of surprise on set. Waltz took a keen interest in the effects in the film and was insistent that no trick should be used too often or in quick succession to prevent the audience from guessing how it was done. Even after nearly 60 years, many of the magical moments in Mary Poppins still dazzle the imagination, whether you know the means of the artifice or not, simply because of the well-considered and ingenious way in which they were all executed. What lessons do you think Mary Poppins is imparting to Jane and Michael? You know, obviously she's there to take care of them, make sure they don't, you know, go off and get themselves killed or anything. But there seems to be such a, a very subtle part of her role is teaching them something about the world. What do you think those lessons are that she's trying to impart to Jane and Michael? Well, you know, she says anything can happen if we can just get out of our own way. Anything can happen if you let it. So she comes in to kind of heal a family and particularly I think she heals the relationship between Michael and Jane as siblings because they're squabbling so much at the beginning. She heals the marriage between Mr. and Mrs. Banks. She heals the the foursome of the of the family. She releases, you know, <laughs> um, being in the rehearsal room with Philip Quast when he would go from this repressed, kind of depressed father into this joyous and watching him create that character with Marina Pryor and just it was such you know watching these veterans of theatre and Deborah Byrne coming on as the bird woman and Judy Connelly and like just watching these people whilst creating with Matt Lee it was such a it was such a joy to go there was a lot of freedom but it felt like the freedom was because all of these people had earned their stripes 10 times over so they could bring because they're so disciplined and can play those repressed characters and can and can do justice so much to the score, they're allowed to then break free at the end of the show um, with with wild abandon. So, I think the le- the lessons I think for Michael and Jane are that you may be institutionalized, and Mary Poppins is all about rules and discipline and hard work, but dream big. Don't get in your own way through fear, you know. There's that beautiful moment where she talks to them in the film about, you know, some people can't see past the end of their nose. And it's such an abstract concept for a kid. I actually remember I remember that being a really big deal to me when I was little. Because I, I can't remember the first time I saw Mary. I would have seen it on television, I imagine. But that line has always stuck with me because as a kid I had to kind of puzzle through it of like, what does she mean he can't see past the end of his nose? And then I... Oh, it's that thing of looking out into the world. I was, when I was re-watching it this morning, there's this 
my favourite moments in the film is the mo- is the walk that George Banks does but after he's had his conversation with Bert, where Bert's been kind of like, dude, you need to be there for your kids in a much more subtle, nice Dick Van Dyke way, but you need to be there for your kids. And then he has that walk where he walks from Cherry Tree Lane to the bank and it's this very long, quiet sequence of just David Tomlinson walking through these beautifully designed map paintings of London. And there's a moment, and I hadn't noticed it until today, there's a moment where he stops and he looks at the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral where the bird woman usually is. And you see for the first time him go, oh, there's usually somebody there. And that moment of, of that, that beautiful idea of we can't move through the world just looking into our own heads. We can't just move, go, move through the world only worrying about ourselves. Anything is possible. Anything can happen. And the only way you'll be able to work, to know that is to look. And in a way, that's kind of what Mary Poppins is inviting them to do with flying on the ceiling and going into the chalk painting or dancing across the roofs of London with chimney sweeps is just to kind of go, look. Look at the world around you and see where you fit within it. You know, from a child's perspective, that's, you know, oh, there's all these wonderful things that I can see and this generosity that I can, you know, participate in. And then for, you know, for George Banks, it's look at what's right there for you. You have these two beautiful children, this incredibly intelligent and driven white. Like the I you just I still I still love the fact that that Mrs. Banks in the film is a suffragette. Like I just like the 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 beautiful complexity of just that of like she's not just a secondary character. She's she's going off to rallies. She's tying herself to the prime minister's you know carriage, and and for him to just go no look at what you've got, like look past the end of your nose and see the beauty. Like that moment where the kids come and give him the tuppence, and he's just like, huh, yeah, they're pretty great. They're pretty great. They're yes. pretty great children. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely the the look out and connect, like connection. She teaches them connection as opposed to, as you said, in your own head, it's a very lonely place and often not a very happy place. And she's saying connect with it and meet these people and genuinely um, the the teachings in Feed the Birds Alone is, um, you know, Michael's so resistant and I know in the in the musical there was a beautiful moment when the director just Jane and Michael kind of go off and she turns her nose in the air and then she just kind of looks back at the bird woman and you know that there's such immense learning going on for these kids and these lessons that are being taught in I, I think the other thing that Mary Poppins does is she teaches through experience as in shows gives the kids an experience to learn through rather than schooling, you know, that (laughs) learning as a parent as well, like that we feel that going to school is the best thing to give our children and that's responsible for our children's learning. But actually life is where our children learn. And this nanny that, that, that George Banks can't believe at the beginning, well, what did you do today? Did you do your this, this and this? And no, we went, we went for a walk in the park. What? You know, that, the experience of learning through experience is the best way to learn for kids and for adults too. And the idea that to live, like in a way there's this, that the, the, another great moment in the film where Bert sits the children down and goes, you know, the person I, I feel the most for in your family is your father because, you know, he works so hard and that's all he does. And there's this thing in the film of for George of to live is to work is to suffer in a way. And it's just that endless cycle and the what, what, 
Mary Poppins kind of introduces into the... Because the children are very much on the path to almost... Discover. It's actually, it, it, thinking about it, it's an interesting thread that then follows into the sequel where the children are suffering from that problem, where the ch- you can see already that, you know, Michael's children are going, oh, no, to live is to work is to suffer. And Mary Poppins' job for them is to kind of break them out of the idea of like, no, now you're not looking past the end of your nose. But in the first film, it's like, using the children's the, you know, the children's discovery of the world and embracing the idea of the world is to live is not to suffer to live is to experience to live is to dis, is to discover and there is pain and there's loss along the way but that just makes it better um that just makes it more rich and then to be able to then have them experiencing that bring that into the house and then to take George and just go look to live is not to suffer you don't have to work in this terrible job and work yourself to the bone discipline is not you know to have a beautifully disciplined house is not the be-all and end-all of existence. There's more There's more to these relationships than what it is that you're giving them. Yes, and the, and the fine line between reality and fantasy that, that when the children come back from some of those magical experiences with Mary Poppins, thinking, did that actually happen? And and did it did it happen <laughs> or did it not happen? Like, it, it, you know, and, and going, what is... A realistic life and what is a life of fantasy? Like you know, not not diving too deep into it, but the adult lessons there. I remember audience responses afterwards, just saying, "Oh, my inner child." I just I just felt my inner child, but actually, I feel like they were just allowing themselves to to kind of enjoy fantasy, but it's reality as well. Like going, "Oh, I need to I need to have more fun. I need to have more play." And, um, and that I feel I want to be in control of everything, which Mary Poppins appears to be, but she also is completely spontaneous and in the moment. It's the revelation of this film, this work, the work, the, the full body of work on Mary Poppins. It's the revelation you have as an adult when you re- re- when you revisit it and realise that Mary Poppins is not there for the children, she's there for... For the well, she's there for the family, but the person she's there to save is George Banks. And that when you realize that, it's amazing how much that unlocks so much about the beautiful mystery of the film and the story of just going, ah, oh, that's why she's here. She's here to, she's not here to introduce, not just to teach these children great lessons, give them great adventures, she's there to save a family. And that when, and it's funny the thing of talking about on your connection, when you were talking before about connection, the image that came to me was the last image of the film of George and Winifred and Jane and Michael flying a kite together, a kite that he's fixed for them. You know, they're all standing there and their kite is, you know, it's, it's a series of connections. In order to be able to reach the sky, you have to have all the pieces that put the kite together and you have to have the string and you have to have someone holding the string and, you know, that there is such a, a, a it, there's a mechanism to that and the ultimate outcome of that is flight and joy and airlessness and seeing the world, you know, that thing that Bert says, you know, the, the world that belongs to the stars and the, and the birds and the chimney sweeps, to be able to, like, rise into the air and see the beauty of the world, that that is such a perfect summation of how that family has now fixed. We've gone from, you know, the one time we've seen them together, the first time we see them together is two kids in night in night gowns reading a letter and a, and the wife sitting at the table and the father standing by the mantelpiece and now they're all standing together arm in arm with this kite. The last question I wanted to ask, which is probably a bit of a strange question, 
is what do you think Mary Poppins gets out of all this? Because I found this quote from P.L. Travers from the transcripts of the story meetings that they had when they were when they were you know nutting through the screenplay, where she talks about the idea that there is something that Mary Poppins also gains from this experience, the from her relationship with the Banks' children and the Banks' family. From having played the character, what do you think it is that ultimately drives Mary? And what is it that she's given at the end that gives her permission to leave? What is she, what, what, what is her, what, where does her arc end on an emotional level? It's such a good, good question. I think, I think she definitely leaves when she knows the healing has been done and that they, she's given them the resources and some tools to move forward as a family and they've reconnected. I don't know what she gets, I don't know what she gets out of it except for the fact that perhaps this is completely made up, but perhaps she doesn't have her own family and therefore her purpose is to, like so many people, that devote themselves to a purpose when they don't have that perhaps is that this time round she's devoting it to helping healing connections. But it's it's fascinating and I don't think I don't think we're supposed to know. I think that's part of the magic. Absolutely. Because it is it's it's funny in both films, it's and you get it because you know the camera is so close up on their faces, but you when she completes her task, there is a sense of sadness. Like when she's watching, looking at the window and seeing the Banks family flying the kite, you can see the thing of like, I've done my job, but there's this this slither of I'm going to miss this. So yeah, it, there's something yeah, there's something very um, beautiful and moving about where we leave Mary. And I think you're right, it's better to never know because that yes. just makes her more appealing. Yes, yeah, the mystery. She's very mysterious. There's the tuppence. The wonderful, fateful, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious tuppence. Guard it well. Goodbye. Wait, where are you going? I don't know. I might pop through a chalk pavement picture and go for an outing in the country, or I might seize a horse off a merry-go-round and win the derby, or I might just fly a kite. Only poppins would know. Rather than relieved, Walt Disney was strangely unnerved by how well production was progressing on Mary Poppins. As the original Mary Poppins budget of $5 million continued to grow, he later remembered, I never saw a sad face around the entire studio, and this made me nervous. I knew the picture would have to gross $10 million for us to break even. But still, there was no negative head shaking, no profits of doom. Even Roy was happy. He didn't ask me to show the unfinished picture to a banker. The horrible thought struck me. Suppose the staff had finally conceded that I knew what I was doing. While Mary Poppins was in production, one of Disney's strongest allies was in tremendous financial trouble. The Chouinard Art Institute had been a stepping stone for many of the artists in the company, but the school was now in financial trouble. The school's founder, Nelbert Chouinard, who was now in her 80s and fearing the school would need to be closed, came to Walt to ask for help. He sent over the studio's accountants, who found that over $20,000 had been stolen from the school over many years. Walt made it his mission to save the school and conceived of an ambitious solution. He suggested merging the Chouinard Art Institute with the equally struggling Los Angeles Conservatory of Music. In 1962, the two institutions merged to form the California Institute of the Arts, or CalArts. Before Mary Poppins began at the premiere, 
Walt took to the stage with Cal Arts Trustees Chairman Lulu Van Hagen to present a short film on the school, The Cal Arts Story. The premiere of Mary Poppins was set for August 27, 1964, at Grauman's Chinese Theatre. The elite of Hollywood were invited to the event, but one person who wasn't invited was Mary Poppins' creator, P.L. Travers. It was perhaps assumed that she would rather have attended the London premiere, but Travers took it upon herself to secure an invitation from a Disney executive and wrote to Walt, telling him to expect her on the night. This is P.L. Travers. Hello. Hello to you. I would like you to tell the people out there how all of this came about. Ah, now you're asking for my secrets, and you know, one of the first things about Mary Poppins is that she never, never explains. I'm looking forward to seeing what he has done tonight very much. Well, I won't hold you any longer. Thank you so much for coming to our microphone. The author of Mary Poppins. Thank you. Bye-bye. The critical response to Mary Poppins was universal and ecstatic. Almost every aspect of the film was praised, from Andrew's debut film performance to the lavish sets and raucous dance sequences. For the visual and oral felicities that have added to this sparkling colour film, wrote Bosley Crowther in the New York Times, the enchantments of a beautiful production, some deliciously animated sequences, some exciting and nimble dancing, and a spinning musical score, make it the nicest entertainment that has opened at the Music Hall this year. You have made a great many pictures, Samuel Goldwyn wrote to Walt, that have touched the hearts of the world, but you have never made one so wonderful, so magical, so joyous, so completely the fulfilment of everything a great motion picture should be, as Mary Poppins. Audiences were likewise captivated by the film, and on its initial theatrical run, the film made an astounding 32 million at the domestic box office, the most of any Disney production at that time. It was even shown in Moscow at the Sports Palace, specially converted into a cinema to accommodate for the 8,000 viewers at each of the two special screenings. Mary Poppins was achieving something almost no Disney film had since Snow White, almost unanimous critical and commercial acclaim, and it was about to do one better. Mary Poppins was nominated for 13 Academy Awards, one below the record set by All About Eve in 1950. They included Best Actress for Julie Andrews, Best Director for Robert Stevenson, Best Score and Best Song for the Sherman Brothers, a bevy of production and technical awards, and most importantly for Walt, the first Best Picture nomination for Walt Disney Productions. In the end, the film would win four Oscars, Best Score, Best Song, Best Editing, and Best Actress for Julie Andrews. Uh, oh, this is lovely. Uh, I know you Americans are famous for your hospitality, but this is really ridiculous. <laughs> uh, I have so many thank yous, I only know where to start, and that's with Mr. Walt Disney, and naturally, he has the largest thank you of all. I wouldn't know where to stop. I would somehow like to try and convey my really deep gratitude and, and well, gratefulness, and, well, I've just said that, haven't I? <laughs> uh, for being made to feel so really welcome in this country. Thank you very much indeed. Much has been made of the reasoning behind Andrew's award, Gossip suggesting that she won not because of her performance in Mary Poppins, but because of the revelation that Audrey Hepburn had been dubbed by singer Marnie Nixon in My Fair Lady. A battle between the two actors was sold to the public and the industry, 
even to the cruel extent that Hepburn was not even nominated for her extraordinary performance in My Fair Lady. But the conflict was entirely invented, and the two women would remain friends for the rest of Hepburn's life. Capping off the film's Oscar success was a special award for Ub Iwerks, Wadworth E. Pohl, and Pedro Vlahos for their work with the sodium vapour process. Walt was disappointed about not winning Best Picture, losing to My Fair Lady, but for him, this was further proof of his place as an outsider in Hollywood. Knowing Hollywood, I never had any hopes that the picture would get it, he wrote to Julie Andrews in April 1965. As a matter of fact, Disney has never actually been part of Hollywood, you know. I think they refer to us as being in that cornfield in Burbank. It would be the only Best Picture nomination for the studio in his lifetime, an achievement that would not be repeated until 1991. And then there was P.L. Travers. As she had been during the development of the film, Travers was contradictory in her opinions of it. At the after-party, she approached Walt and insisted on further changes to the film, such as removing the animated sequence she had consistently objected to. Pamela, that ship has sailed, he replied. For the most part, Travers seemed to be unhappy with the film, writing to her lawyer Arnold Goodman, as chalk is to cheese, so is the film to the book. Tears ran down my cheeks because it was all so distorted. I was so shocked that I felt I would never write, let alone smile, again. That very same day, though, she wrote to Walt that the whole picture was a splendid spectacle and I admire you for perceiving in Julie Andrews an actress who could play the part. For Pamela Travers, Mary Poppins was a deeply personal creation, one that she would continue to grow and develop for the rest of her life. And in hindsight, it makes sense that she should have been so conflicted about the film. In the 1980s, she would return to Disney to help develop a potential sequel but this project never eventuated in her lifetime. Mary Poppins remains one of the crown jewels of the Walt Disney Company, beloved by critics and audiences just as emphatically today as it was in 1964. Its sweet and saccharine tone speaks directly to the heart of everything the company and its creator represents, both the stability of the family and the joyous anarchy of the imagination. And where other films collapse under the weight of their sentimentality, it is so genuine and heartfelt in Mary Poppins that it somehow elevates it. There's an unexpected emotional power to the film, especially when it shifts from the childhood abandon to the careful importance of growing up to be the best person you can. I know you hate naming favourites, but it is the last question I have to ask on this podcast of each guest. Do you have a favourite Disney animated classic? You know, Snow White, I have to say Snow White has always stayed with me. I think I think it was I think I was quite scared the first time I watched it. Even though, yeah, I, I think Snow White. Great. I mean, it's it's you know, it's kind of the archetype of what we understand of what a Disney yeah, film being. And yet, yeah. blood that bit where she runs through the fucking woods is yeah. fucking scary. <laughs> they're, I know. Clawing I, at her. I know. I know. And even though the dwarves are very charismatic and lovely and animated I, I there's a real darkness that maybe I must have been drawn to but also yes. that's what stays in my memory well it's probably for a child particularly if this is a film that you're introduced to as at a very young age it's the first concept you go with the world is dangerous and the idea of like how do you navigate a world that is is, is dangerous and how do you navigate it and still be a good person because ultimately she still remains to be a good person I mean it's Snow White it's great it's one of the greats 
Verity, thank you so much for sharing your insight and your experience and your stories with us and your relationship with Mary Poppins. Um, it's been a real treat. And congratulations on Story Kids. It is a really, really beautiful podcast. I hope it has all the success in the world. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, here's the family coming home, loving and united from their kite flying. The children doing things that make Mr. Banks laugh. Mr. Banks is carrying Michael on his back. Um, uh, the, the kite is flying up from Michael's hand, and Jane has her arm tucked inside her mother's. Two girls together, you see. Mary Poppins was one of the biggest successes Walt Disney had ever experienced, certainly enough to rival the legendary release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. He and his collaborators had poured everything they had learned at the animation desks and sweatbox sessions into the film, and for the first time in a very long time, they could look at the work they had done with collective pride. Back in the animation department, work had already begun on the next animated feature film. Once again, Bill Peet was leading the team through an adaptation of a great literary classic, one that would build on the confidence they had developed with the Xerox process on 101 Dalmatians, and elevate it to even greater heights. They were deep in the jungles of India, where a boy raised by wolves and mentored by animals must leave the safety of home and family to discover who he is meant to be. Walt could feel a new creative energy beginning to build, energy he was not only directing into plans for an ambitious new amusement park and futuristic city complex in Florida, but back into the animated films he had neglected for so long. Just over two years later, that energy would come to a sudden, crashing end. Robert Sherman would later recall that after work on a Friday, Walt Disney would often invite the Sherman brothers back to his office. Towards the end of the evening, he would simply say to Richard, play it. And Richard Sherman would sit at the piano and play Feed the Birds, Walt's favorite song from any of the films he had made. He would stand there quietly, sometimes looking out the window as he listened. One evening, when Richard had finished playing, Walt whispered under his breath, Yep, that's what it's all about. next episode of Ink and Paint. I mean, this is the challenge as a foster care. You know, you're not the fun uncle for a weekend. I'm joined by Melbourne Fringe creative director and CEO Simon Abrahams to discuss the final film of the Silver Age, the rollicking wonder, The Jungle Book. Thanks again to Verity Hunt-Ballard for joining me on this episode. Make sure you check out Verity's terrific podcast, Story Kids, which is available on all podcasting platforms. Be sure to check out the show notes on this episode at inkandpaint.com.au for more information about the making of Mary Poppins, including concept art and animation sketches and information about the history of the film on home video. You can follow Ink and Paint on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Ink Paint Pod for bonus material and news on upcoming episodes. You can also email daniel at inkandpaint.com.au or find me on Twitter at Daniel Lamon. We release new episodes every fortnight, as well as bonus in-betweeners every now and then. 
So if you enjoyed the show, please rate, review and follow on your favourite podcasting platform. And don't forget to tell your friends. Ink and Paint was created, hosted and written by myself, Daniel Lamon, and produced and edited by Alex Amster. Theme music is composed by Sam Porter. The show artwork is designed by Nicholas Pirinakis, with episode illustrations by Lily Grace Meek, and the podcast is released through Switch. Maketheswitch.com.au Join in next time on Ink and Paint to continue our journey through the Disney animated classics. Energy, he was not only directing into plans for an ambitious new amusement... Oh, come on!